Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU, WTIU News, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU, WTIU News Director. We're doing our show remotely today because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. We're trying to avoid the risk of spreading any more infection. This week, we're talking with public health, business, and economic experts about the possibility of easing Indiana's stay-at-home order, res- orders and restrictions. And uh, our guests today are Graham McKean, Assistant Director of Public and Environmental Health for Indiana University, Kevin Brenniger, President of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce, and Todd Haw, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at IU Kelly School of Business. You can join us on this program today by sending your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to all of our guests. We're really happy to have you here with us today. Looks like the governor is going to be making a big announcement in about two and a half hours. We'll see what that is. But before he does that, I want to ask first Graham McKean who we've had on the show before, uh, public and environmental health, uh, public health expert, from IU. Graham, are we ready to uh, to reduce some of these restrictions? Uh, well, of course, our recommendations in public health are, are a little biased towards public health, of course, and maybe those things don't always align with our realities and economies. And um, Therefore, I'd argue currently today, at this moment, um, we, were, we are not. We're not seeing that downward trend in cases yet. Uh, at least if we're looking at the federal guidance, they're asking for a 14-day decrease in, in you know, sustained transmission in cases. Um, you know, we're not currently, while hospitals are very busy, um, and I'm not going to discount that at all, we've got a lot of heroes working out there. Uh, Indiana, luckily, has not overloaded its critical care capacities. Uh, so that is a good thing. Uh, the other good thing uh, that is coming is is the testing and the contact tracing. You're starting to finally see that expand. However, I think those things and the investments that Indiana made this week, which were, were great to get us back to containment, are not in place yet and won't be in place for a couple of weeks. And um, just moments ago, the state announced today's numbers, which were the second highest that we've seen yet today. So we're still kind of in the acceleration phase of this first wave of the pandemic. We're still kind of teetering at the top. Um, you know, hospitalizations are kind of flattening and declining in some areas, but other areas of the state. And it really kind of looks at what district you're in um, is the current situation. But uh, I would say we're just not quite there yet. Um, whatever we do do has to be very careful and calculated in a phased approach. All right. I think the governor has said he, he wants to be, I think he's he's said that he wants to do a phased approach of some sort. Kevin Brenninger, what, what do you hope to hear today? Well, I'm hoping to hear that um, the governor is um, going to announce that we will uh, begin uh, relaxing the stay-at-home order, um, probably not Monday, because that doesn't give businesses and people a chance to um, prepare, but um, I would guess in in a couple weeks, I know the businesses are ready to get back at it. They've been um, severely hurt financially, but at the same time, um, you know, we did a survey of that included 1400 business leaders from around the state. And it's very clear that they're deeply interested and concerned about the safety of their employees and their customers. There are plans uh, being put together as to when they reopen, um, how to do that safely um, with, social distancing, continued mass, uh, deep cleaning, um, spacing, and, and maybe even limiting where employees and customers can be and how many uh, employees uh, can be there at, and customers at a time. But um, 
they're ready to go. This has been a, a, a severe impact, but yet they understand uh, that we need to pay attention and listen to public health officials. And we know that that is indeed exactly what Governor Holcomb is doing. I think he's, he's taken a very thorough and very transparent approach to this. Um, but I don't uh, envy the, the difficult decision that he has to make or uh, that other governors have to make across the country. So I want to ask Todd Hobb uh, essentially the same question. I mean, you, from your perspective as an assistant professor of business law and ethics, I mean, when you see what's going on, and you, you heard Kevin Brenninger just talking about how you know individual businesses will do everything in their power to make sure that um, their employees and their customers are safe. What kind of liability issues do you see? Do you, do you think that we're ready from what you know to open this up a little bit? Well, I think uh, I would echo um, uh, what Kevin said a little bit, which is, uh, I think what he's getting at is that there's this very delicate balance uh, that business owners are going to have to um, have to face. And so they're thinking about everything from uh, their own safety in the family, their own family safety, uh, worker safety, of course, um, but then and also all the economic realities uh, that have hit uh, small businesses in particular. And so, um, and they have to think about long-term liability issues. So we think about what they could be facing runs the gamut. Everything, um, certainly on the, on the civil side, uh, suits, lawsuits from uh, workers over safety concerns, uh, potentially suits uh, from consumers, depending on the, the industry and the business. And I've written a little bit about even potential criminal liability uh, for um for not paying attention and, and not um, taking care of uh, products and things like that uh, in certain industries. So there's a lot weighing on uh, the minds of business people and it's going to be uh, a, a difficult, they're in a difficult spot for sure as they try to balance all these different interests. Yeah, Todd, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that from this perspective, uh, you know, Governor Holcomb yesterday, um, and the other state officials basically said that fear of going back to work is not a good enough reason to continue to get unemployment benefits. Is that a sort of a sustainable position when it comes to, you know, legal issues? Or how do you look at that in, in terms of an ethical um, ethical policy? Yeah. Well, so first of all, uh, I'm I'm not a, a labor and employment attorney, so that's not quite my area of expertise. I can comment on the on the ethical side, though. Of course, you know, we generally think about uh, the law as being a floor, not a ceiling. And so, um, you know, the fact that um, that a business owner would be facing some sort of legal liability doesn't absolve them of of that uh, ethical decision that they have to make relating to all kinds of their other stakeholders, and that's going to include, of course, um, their employees. What's so what's so difficult about what's going on now, though, is even with employees, um, it cuts both ways because you're thinking about health and safety, which is always what business should be thinking about uh, for their employees, but they're also thinking about livelihood. Um, and so these uh, restrictions, uh, as important as they are, also, of course, impact the livelihood of not only the business itself, but also the employees. And so it, it's there's no there's no perfect ethical framework or lens um, to, to manage all this. It's really um, business owners just have to make sure that they're considering all facets of the issue and not just uh, the economics, for example, or not just, um, you know, health and safety. It's got to be, it's got to be all of it. Kevin Brennan here from the state chambers. Can you give us a sense of, of what this has meant for business in the state? How much, how bad are the losses? Well, let me, uh, if I could, address what the law says about your, your previous question. Okay. Um, because I think there's some confusion out there. The, the people that are currently have been laid off through no fault of their own are able to draw unemployment. And right now they're getting a substantial boost um, in from what they would normally get just from the state of Indiana because of the CARES Act providing an additional $600 a week on top of whatever uh, state unemployment benefit um, the individual is eligible for, which maxes out at $390 a week. So it's almost uh, three times the, the uh, state amount in, in total. 
But what the law says is if you're called back to work, and regardless of whether you think it's safe to go back to work and you decline, then um, you lose your unemployment benefits. And there's been some talk about people making appeals. There is no appeal process on the unemployment compensation side. You can file uh, a complaint, an individual can file a complaint with uh, the Indiana Department of Labor uh, OSHA Division, Occupational Health and Safety and Health, and um, they can investigate whether the workplace um, is safe or whether there are any violations of current laws and regulations, and that can be appealed all the way up to court. But um, that doesn't mean that you get your, uh, even if you win, it doesn't mean you get your unemployment benefits back. Um, so uh, the employer, the employee, excuse me, is called back. They must come back or they lose their benefits. Now, it is, I agree with the previous speaker, um, important for the business owner and operator to um, do everything possible to keep the workplace safe in general and in this case particularly from the um, the coronavirus and that's what overwhelmingly employers want to do they don't want to operate in unsafe places they don't want to have big outbreaks and, and be in the news like we've seen uh, with the um, pork processing plant up in Logansport they want to keep their employees and their customers safe uh, because they, those are their people and um, they overwhelmingly will um, do the right thing and, and, you know, follow what we might consider to be ethical guidelines and um, do what they can to make the, uh, the workplace safe before they uh, reopen in the cases of those that have had to um, shut down because they were not an essential business. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. I appreciate it. So now what you, was the other question? Yeah, right. So can you, can you talk a little bit, a little bit about the overall impact on Indiana businesses? Yeah. How long is it going to take yeah. for, the businesses to make this up or to, to come close to making it up? Uh, the short answer is, I think, qu quite a long time. I mean, I know economists have talked about whether this was going to be a, uh, the impact was going to be a V-shaped recession with a sharp decline and then a sharp recovery, or whether it was more of a U-shape. Um, we did a uh, survey of business leaders from across the state uh, during the period of April 20, or excuse me, April 16th to April 22nd. We had 1,400 respondents of uh, business folks from all around the state. And one of the questions we asked was, how severely impacted um, has your business been uh, so far by, by the COVID crisis? Uh, and we had them rank it on a scale of one to 10 with one being no impact at all, <clears throat> excuse me, and 10 being essentially total devastation. And, um, 53% of the respondents uh, ranked the impact thus far, uh, that was up through April 22nd, as an 8, 9, or 10, and the average score was um, 7.2. Uh, so the, the impact has been very dramatic. Um, large percentages of those respondents um, had had 80% uh, said financial impact, uh, about a third said that they've been forced to close. Um, because of the nature of their business. Uh, a large percentage said they've had to lay people off. We also ask, um, how long do you, um, can your business survive financially under these current lockdown circumstances? 23% uh, said less than three months. 37%, which includes that 23%, said less than six months. And uh, about 29% said they didn't know. So it's clear the, the impact uh, on Indiana businesses in, on the whole has been very substantial. Now that said, uh, I've talked to you know, a number of businesses, particularly in construction and some manufacturing operations that are still operating almost as business as usual. And in, and in some cases, if you're making you know, masks or hand sanitizer or other things, your, your business is actually up. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but overwhelmingly, it's been uh, quite negative and quite significant. Kevin, you mentioned the Tyson plant there in Logansport, and we just learned that um, they think there are more, the health department there thinks there's more than a thousand positive cases associated with that Tyson foods processing plant. 
But we got a question from someone and the question, and Graham, maybe you would be in the best position to answer this, but the question is, why can meat processors test all their employees, quarantine them positive, replace them, open, and then keep testing? What was the uh, end of the question? How come they do um, not? Let me, let me read the last part again. Uh, why yeah. can't they test all employees, quarantine those who test positive, replace them, open, and then keep testing? I think that's, I mean, that's definitely a plan and part of the goal. Uh, testing has been very limited, though, and I think that's definitely been part of the problem. And um, just these plants and proximity in which people work by nature uh, lends itself very easily to transmission. So um, you did see that last week with ISDA. She did send a strike team in to do that testing, and that's why we saw, gee, I think it was over 700 confirmed cases in less than 48 hours from that plant. But that, that, is, that would be the goal. Um, what, what's very challenging with that is, is you literally would have to test everyone as well because of what we know about asymptomatic transmission. And that's what makes um, this virus going to be so incredibly challenging going forward is that we think at least 25 and maybe, you know, maybe half of us that get this virus never show symptoms, yet we're infectious. And so with the limited testing capabilities we have now, uh, which are still limited, even for symptomatic patients in some cases, um, is just not there uh, to do that type of, of wide-scale testing. And, and we have supply chain shortages and personnel shortages and lab lab supply reagent swab shortages as well. Um, and so why all these plans are, are good and a lot of people are maybe looking at basing testing on reopening plans. Um, you know, there's some limitations to that currently. I do think that Indiana did a, a great job this week with partnering with OptumServe to, to expand those testing sites. And, um, you know, again, that's probably a week or two away to being fully operational along with the contact tracing that they talked about uh, this week. That should be operational about 10 days. So I think Kevin's timeline of maybe a couple of weeks uh, makes some sense to when you can maybe start to do these things if those things are in fact in place and able to be managed. Yeah, so Graham, could I would, you just... If oh, I might ahead. add on the... That's two things. One, I, I would echo the the very uh, importance and, and tip of the cap to the governor for arranging this new um, testing um, opportunities that will be available all over the state. That's going to be huge uh, to this overall effort. And then the, I would add the, the other thing I, I'm personally aware of that contributed to this proliferation uh, in the Logansport area is that many of those workers were refugees um, and live in sort of communal uh, living situations with significant number of people people in any given household or, or living arrangement. And that, uh, in turn, really facilitated the spread of the disease among that community. So, Graham, if you could just itemize again, what, what would you be looking for for benchmarks for the state to be able to, to really start reopening? Well, again, looking at the federal guidance, which is pretty general, but it's a good place to start. It, it talks about uh, it's the three-phased approach, and there's a gating criteria. So that just to get to that, the first gate of the first phase, you have to have that defined in cases. Uh, you have to not be, you know, uh, resulting to crisis care, have enough PPE for your hospitals, and be able to tell, test health healthcare workers in those high-risk groups. Um, and so, I'd say partially we're there with that uh, in terms of the critical care, but also you don't just want to reopen and then you have a rebound, and all of a sudden you're not. Um, and and the decline in cases, um, you know, we're not there right now, but we're also testing more. So the more you test, the more you're going to see. So I think the more important thing to look at is the hospitalization rate as well uh, and the critical care support with that. Um, and then outside of those things, uh, obviously, you just need the ability to, to trace and contract contact trace to case investigations to do surveillance uh, of the disease so you can get around those things. Uh, and so that is a key element of this as well. Um, and then. <clears throat> Outside of that, uh, I think you can slowly begin to implement things in a phased approach. Um, but you know, there's it's really going to be a lot of a challenge. Um, not a lot has changed. Um, we know a little bit more about the virus, and some of what we know is actually more concerning in terms of uh, the potential for aerosol or airborne transmission. In some cases, we think at least short range, uh, the asymptomatic transmission. Um, and you know, there's still no treatment. There's still no vaccine. And because we've all been inside. Um, the last however many days it's been, um, the seroprevalence, the prevalence of the disease in Indiana is still really low in terms of active cases and those that have had it in terms of like antibody testing. And so we're doing some of those studies now to see what that is in Indiana, but I, I, I highly guarantee, I don't guarantee, I highly assume 
that that prevalence is very low, maybe the single digits in this part of the state or the Midwest. So that means that 95% of us are still susceptible to this disease. And so anything we do and all these measures uh, that we're taking and, and they're all worth taking, again, are also all imperfect, uh, especially when we talk about the asymptomatic transition. So it has uh, transmission. So it has to be that very measured slow approach, uh, at least from a public health standpoint, uh, to be able to maintain that. All right, we're talking about uh, coronavirus, of course, today, again, on Noon Edition, we have Graham McKean, Assistant Director of, Pu of Public Environmental uh, Health for Indiana University, Kevin Brenninger, President of the Indiana State Chamber of Commerce, and Todd Haw, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at the IU Kelly School of Business. If you want to ask a question or just give your comment, you can send it to uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Noon Edition. You can contact us that way as well. I wanted to ask about uh, some of the protests that have been going on. We, and I will say we've gotten, probably in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten maybe 200 different comments or letters or questions to the WFIU newsroom. And many of them are people who are weighing in on, on wanting to go back to work, wanting to reopen the economy. About an equal number probably don't want to reopen the economy until the, the health measures look better. But you see protests in places like Michigan, the protests at the State House the other day, where people are definitely not social distancing. They're angry with their government. Um, Graham, when might we see whether, whether there's a spike in cases in Michigan after people get together and, and to, um, you know, just to, to basically make their voices heard like that? Well, um, the incubation period, we think, is between two and 14 days. Um, the overwhelming average seems to be about five days. So you would maybe look for that kind of time frame. And that's why, um, you know, that's why we at least are looking for with this gating criteria, seeing that 14 days of decline to give you at least one incubation cycle uh, to show that the, the community transmission is going down. I think a lot of people are looking at the case counts there as well as in Georgia uh, with Governor Kemp's reopening to kind of see how that how that plays out. But uh, generally, the, the average incubation period is about five days. Um, but also, I mean, that's for one person and then one person maybe gets two to three other people ill and there's another you know, five-day incubation period there. So the incubation period is a little bit longer than the flu. <clears throat> so I would look out a couple of weeks uh, at minimum. So Todd Hawk, can you talk a little bit about the, um, I guess the legalities of, of protests like that? Obviously the First Amendment protects your right to assemble, but when the state has, a, has executive orders that call for distancing, um, how do those things conflict or interact? Uh, well, that's a that's a great question. I mean, uh, certainly uh, the state has, uh, under the police powers, has the ability to uh, issue orders like that. Um, it's under the general police powers. Um, it can potentially run up against the First Amendment, um, but because we obviously all have a right to um, to to assemble uh, and and um, and uh, speak freely in in most contexts. Um, you know, I think uh, a different question right now, though, is about the enforcement sort of side of it. And so, um, yes, you have those laws in place, obviously. Um, but the question is, how are you going to enforce them? Are you going to enforce that? And so, um, you know, in these limited circumstances, it seems like there's been a fairly hands-off approach. Um, whether that will be litigated down the road, uh, I, I don't know. Um, but but right now it seems to be at least as as I've seen so far it's been pretty small numbers of protests um, and those haven't been broken up even though uh, there are these sort of stay at home orders and things like that I'd expect that's probably going to be the case uh, but but it's it's hard to tell. All right, and I also want to follow up and again maybe I'm not sure which one of you can answer this or if any of you can but. Um, the governor, again, yesterday said that different communities, if they want to have stricter regulations than he uh, sets out today, that can be done. Um, the Monroe County Commissioners this week extended um, the uh, emergency in Monroe County until May 15th. Do you know if that has the effect of essentially being a stay-at-home order for Monroe County no matter what the governor does today? Any of you? 
To my knowledge, that is a separate um, declaration, and I think that's more used to get funds for relief and, and preparedness and those kind of things. Um, now, separately, uh, Mayor Hogg said Indianapolis did extend Marion counties along with uh, Dr. Virginia Kane yesterday to the 15th, and that was explicitly a stay-at-home order. Okay, so it would have to be maybe worded a little bit differently. I guess we'll find out about that. There is a news conference later today or a press availability with the commissioners and the and the mayor and a lot of other local people that's right before the governor. So we're going to get a lot more news out of this as the afternoon um, moves along. But uh, so Graham, again, if we could, you could talk about, you know, how this has played out. You've been on this program three or four times. And I think early on, people were talking about a couple of weeks, maybe a month. Now it's been, uh, uh, it's been more than a month. It's looking like things are going to be going on for quite a long time. Um, you know, from your perspective, is it, have things gone pretty much the way you thought they would, or has this just been hanging on longer than you had expected? Um, a little bit of mix, a little bit of both. Um, I think the first time we got together was the end of January, and I was tired of this already, but it was not here yet, at least not to our knowledge. Um, and those things have changed, and, and it is, um, while it's a quick kind of rise up the slope of these these waves it's going to be a much slower uh, ride down and I, I i i am one that enjoys good news trust me i do i do like to be happy and provide good news to people but i uh day near daily at, at the university uh, ruin everybody's day by talking about this and and yesterday um last night in bed reading out loud to my partner um the Sid rap it's from uh, university of minnesota it's uh, michael olstrom and, and mark lips from uh, harvard and some others uh, that have put out a report and and they think that this is likely to go on and then be transmitting uh, in our population for the next 18 to 24 months uh, and it's definitely going to be a long game now is it going to be like this this whole time no it might be some uh, some rolling of effect uh, that you see there so there's going to be likely waves of this what those waves look like depend on a, a number of factors um, there's a lot of public health experts, medical experts, I think we're going to see a large spike in the winter. So, you know, you might have to see some mix and we have to get really creative in terms of maybe some rolling or kind of on and off mitigation measures. And what are your points to do that? Uh, so I think, you know, we're all learning, we're all on Zoom, we're all doing different things. I think some of those things are going to have to extend likely until we reach a point of herd immunity, which, you know, in that, that document last night, they're saying at least 60 to 70 people would need to be infected uh, to reach some type of, of impediment of that or a vaccine. Um, and, you know, you can't hang your head on that just yet. Um, so we're seeing some good signs about that. And this would be an absolute miracle in a timeline, especially the things that we're seeing from Oxford and some others. And I think we just announced yesterday that uh, some Catalan here in Bloomington is going to partner with Johnson Johnson Manufacturing. But this is definitely going to be a long game. So again, if we can get those robust containment measures in place uh, that we need to have in place. And then we can we can manage what we can measure. Um, but we, we're still probably going to be six feet apart. We're still going to be in masks um, probably throughout the duration of this event, I would, I would assume. So Graham, since you sort of mentioned the long game, a couple questions that we've gotten. Um, we've gotten a couple about summer camps, if that is a safe thing for parents to do with their kids. Also a question about summer weddings and is it okay if a woman is asking for her daughter to continue on planning for her wedding in August? Really, really hard to say um, and it's gonna be difficult. I w and again, looking back at that federal guidance. So, you know, if you can get to that gating criteria which is gonna take a couple of weeks uh, and then to go, through, to go through each phases uh, would be at least you have to meet another two weeks and, and still meet that gating criteria of decreased cases. Um, and so that whole period, if you're doing that smoothly with no rebound, no no wave, uh, that's six weeks at a minimum. And in the third phase of the federal guidance, I think that's when they kind of, you're able to kind of get back together again. But again, a whole lot uh, not changes unless we reach a herd immunity, unless we reach a breakthrough for a, a treatment uh, or, or a vaccine. So um, I think it's really difficult to say. I think initially we're looking at, um, you know, groups of 10 or, uh, or less in a social setting with social distancing, and then maybe after a few weeks upping that to 50. Things you can do outside <laughs> are better. Uh, you can space out more. So I, I think it's really hard to say at this point, but um, um, it, it seems to be like it, it might be pretty limited. Um, we might have some sort of normalcy here for a month or two in the summer, and then we might uh, see uh, some spikes in cases, and it might come back seasonally as well. 
But Bob, can I jump in for one yeah, second? Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Graham, I'd be interested to hear uh, your take on this as well. You know, primarily we've been talking about um, sort of medical issues, uh, testing and things like that. There's this whole other aspect, uh, which is the behavioral side of this. And so um, even with all the restrictions, even and as we think about sort of transitioning out of this, there's this, uh, there's a big question about how, pe how people's behavior will change. And so will we be sort of fatigued with the social distancing criteria and they'll start to lapse? How will companies, how will organizations um, help their employees and their customers actually follow these things in practice? Uh, because it, everything that I've seen, all, all the models sort of depend on us continuing these types of practices for quite a while. And so as soon as those start to break down, then that really opens up the chance of uh, spikes in infections and things like that. So uh, I just, it, it's one thing, it's another thing, unfortunately, to think about um, even aside from the, the legal liability and, and the medical uh, advances that we're seeing already. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's, a lot of it's going to be about behavior science and maintaining healthy behaviors, and that's extremely challenging. You can tell somebody how to do something, you give them a handout, but that doesn't really change their behavior. And I think a lot of us are already getting that fatigue. And there's some resources to show that that, I mean, you can look at the images of the beaches of California for one, but also there are, you know, there's some maps out there looking at GPS data and stuff like that. And um, social distancing uh, was working, and we were doing a really good job of that a few weeks ago. But uh, across the nation, I think, I think we have like a D right now. In Indiana, it's pretty similar. Uh, so that does seem to be trending backwards already. So how do you manage that? How do you enforce that, uh, whether that be on a campus or in a workplace? Yeah, I want to ask Kevin to weigh in first, and then I have another question about campus. But Kevin, how can, how can I guess it would be incumbent upon businesses and business leaders to try to enforce that in the workplace? Well, yeah, it will absolutely be um, important for um, business owners, business leaders to um, enforce that. Uh, and that may mean, you know, putting, um, blocking off certain areas to, to, you know, force the distancing, putting tape on the floor, et cetera, um, re, you know, requiring masks, uh, except maybe when you're in your office by yourself, uh, things of that nature. And those are all the kinds of preparations that, um, businesses both here in Indiana and across the country are are thinking through as it pertains to their workspace whether that be a manufacturing floor or an office setting um, and I, I think the you know the, the word is out that um, you know we're going to be in this and doing these kinds of things for quite some time to come and um, a lot of time and energy is being placed um uh, spent right now on preparing for that. And I've talked to um, a couple members of ours uh, in the last week who are still operating uh, in manufacturing construction, and they've talked about the changes they've made. They've, you know, moved employees apart. Uh, some of the manufacturing facilities have um, spread people out, and in the process, it's reduced their ability, their production levels on any given day. They're staggering uh, shifts more, you know, doing things to try to uh, do their best to keep people safe. And it is going to be important um, that that be enforced. Um, and some employers will do it better than others. I had to, to take a car in for repair the other morning, and I was surprised that uh, and I had my mask on and I was staying back away. And I was surprised that the the check-in stations were, you know, were set up to be almost shoulder to shoulder. And there was still like five associates there standing shoulder to shoulder, no masks on. You know, I would have thought that they would have done every other workstation, but they didn't. And I thought, well, okay, they're not practicing social distancing. They apparently haven't gotten the message. Well, Kevin, could you add, uh, could you address the issue of um, retail outlets? Uh, of course, Simon Mall said, that they're hoping to reopen um, this week. I don't think it's going to happen in, in Marion County, but it could happen in Bloomington and Monroe County at College Mall if uh, you know if the the governor loosens restrictions as early as Monday. What kind of uh, preparations are you are you hearing in retail outlets like a Macy's? 
Well, um, all I know on that is what I've seen in the media. Um, they have backed off and they're not opening their Marion County malls, but they, I believe they are in, in Hamilton County and, and Johnson County, the Greenwood Park Mall and, and other locations. There are um, going to be restrictions on how many people can be in the mall overall. And, um, and likewise, spacing in the stores uh, and uh, so th there are precautionary measures being taken, um, but it, you know it'll be up to the, the store owners and and I suppose the the people that patrol the mall in general uh, in the common areas to to keep people safe. I'm not I'm sure what they're going to do in the restaurants, um, but I do know just but only from what I've read in the media um, and and seen on you know, on the news last night uh, that there are indeed precautionary measures being being put in place and limitations on how many people can be in the mall or in a particular store. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and we're talking today about the prospects of Indiana reopening, at least uh, in part, uh, from the restrictions in, on the stay-at-home order that Governor Holcomb has put in place. We're talking with Graham McKean from Indiana University. He is a, a public health expert. Kevin Brenninger is president of the Indiana Chamber of Commerce. And Todd Haw is an assistant professor of business law and ethics at IU Kelly School of Business. If you want to contact us here in the next 20 minutes or so, you can give us, you can, uh, give us an email. Send us an email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also contact us through Twitter at Noon Edition. So Todd and Graham, you're both here on the Bloomington campus. President McGrawby outlined five different scenarios, possible scenarios for the fall. Uh, with the kinds of things that we're talking about here, um, I would say it seems like there would be lots of complications to having students come back in full force this fall. But I want to get your take on it because I, I know nothing. So. I think that's an understatement, Bob, uh, it being a challenge. I think I saw it recently uh, in a higher ed article, but it's like driving through a dense fog right now, looking looking towards the fall. And so really too hard to, and early to say what that's going to look like. Of course, we want to have uh, an in-person presence. And I think McRobbie said it, uh, that he, he thought, and I think that makes sense. There'll probably be some combination of things. But as we know, things are going to look very different. Um, so some of our recommendations that we'll have from public health will, you know, we'll, we'll pass along to the administration and they'll make decisions and we'll operate, operationalize those. But I mean, it include things like even, um, you know, single occupancy rooms, um, you know, just doing pickup and drop off for dining or spacing out dining or doing some of those things out outdoors. Um, anything is on the table in terms of classes. What I think that was pretty well described in the document and how we do that and maybe clustering or pods or uh, looking at different lengths of courses, mixtures of online and, and in person and those kind of things. And I think, you know, at least initially, we're, we're probably still not going to be looking at any in-person events and, and major gatherings and sporting events, at least with spectators. And I think initially we'll, we'll also be doing pretty heavy restrictions on travel, depending on the situation. But um, it's, it's going to be a, a, an extreme challenge, but one that we're, we're planning for and we're planning for various scenarios right now. All right. Todd? Yeah, the, the only thing I would add is just, uh, you know, I was heartened to see, uh, and, and I don't have any inside information on this, of course, but um, but just how how many different scenarios um, that that the, the school is looking at. So, you know, the, the president's message, essentially five different scenarios, and they're sort of weighty. They're taking a very, I think, appropriate kind of risk-based uh, analysis and approach here. Um, and then the only other, the only other point is course this is all complicated because you have um, a lot of other institutions um, all across the country but even in in the state uh, doing things much differently um, and or potentially much differently and so there, there's no real consensus I know there is a lot of coordination and discussion um, between uh, schools at different levels and through different organizations but uh, it really is a you know smorgasbord of of how schools are going to handle this and of course some of that's appropriate based on on size and location, um, but it would be uh, it would be nice if um, if I think if there were some directives uh, from from maybe uh, either federal government or higher up uh, that were a little bit more um, straightforward about what was appropriate and and how and why. 
Can either one you either one of you address public schools as well? We're talking about IU here and higher education, but what about public schools? Are they going to be back in session in the fall? I think that's their goal, from what I've heard heard and seen, and um, you know, I think it'll be pretty similar format uh, that that can be extended to that group. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that is the goal at this time, at least. But again, it's just so hard to say. And so that's another thing we're looking at at IU is just what metrics and data do we need to look at to make the best decisions and and when would you maybe uh, reinstate uh, a mitigation measure or, or go back to maybe an online format? And so those are all things that uh, we're looking at intensely. Okay, Sarah? If you, go ahead. Uh, well, you can go ahead, Kevin, and then I'll ask my question. Well, I, I was going back to the question about higher ed. I, I think that um, uh, this event is um, going to turn um, higher education in Indiana and across the country on its ear. I, I think it's going to accelerate a, um, a trend and a concern that was already happening um, about um, attendance and enrollments. There's, there's a, a, a big drop-off coming in the next few years of 18-year-olds of coming out of high school and our colleges, uh, both public and private, are, we're very concerned about that. Uh, now I think they're going to be dealing with um, students and parents um, being wary of going onto a residential campus and feeling safe, and it's going to increase demand, I think, for online courses, which some are already moved in that direction. My son is in the last semester of finishing up a, a law degree and an MBA from the Kelly School and the McKinney School up at the IUPUI campus, and all of his courses um, from both schools were switched over to online courses literally midstream in the semester uh, and, the, and the professors are learning how to do that if they weren't doing it already um, and I know that they're going to continue that th through the summer um, and we may see a lot of schools that, that don't go back uh, at least completely to um, you know the classroom style uh, delivery of educational services. I think that's a good segue into a question I have, which um, we talked to the owner of Showers Inn yesterday, and he said a big thing is going to be restoring confidence in customers and letting them know they're safe. So Kevin, perhaps you and Todd both could kind of weigh in on that challenge, certainly not just with hotels, but with restaurants and businesses in general. I'll let him go first. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and again, this kind of gets back to my my comment about sort of the behavioral aspect of this. Uh, the the what's tied so close to that is kind of the psychology of the consumer and the psychology of of the of the worker. And so um, the the battle is not just on on the medical front, but it's giving people confidence that they're not going to get sick, that they're not going to infect themselves, and then of course that they're not going to take that infection back uh, to, the, to those uh, that they love. And so um, it, you almost have to have a, in some ways, kind of a, an overzealous approach in order, I think, to instill that confidence. Um, one of the challenges, of course, is that, is the, is the testing issue. And so if we don't have as many tests as we'd like, or even the tests that we have, I'm thinking here about sort of antibody testing, for example, uh, because the prevalence of the of the infections are so low in the population, even a highly accurate antibody test isn't going to necessarily give you as much confidence as you otherwise uh, might want to uh, to know whether you're, for example, immune. Um, e even though there's a lot of questions about how long immunity will last and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's an uphill battle uh, because it's it, it's a slower process on the psychology and the behavior than it is even on the medicine and the science, which is is a longer process uh, in and of itself. I think I agree that the the psychology of the consumer um, is critical to how fast or how slow the economy um, will rebound and uh, what the interactions are. I, I saw a piece yesterday that that was uh, said suggesting that there were four key elements to at least four key elements to making 
customers feel comfortable coming into a place like a hotel or a, you know a convention facility. Um, one was uh, easily easy access to hand sanitizers. One a visibility that there was act, active cleaning going on, uh, and for the near term that employees are wearing masks, and uh, and that there are provisions and they can see visible separation and lines on the floor for you know waiting lines and things like that for social distancing. Um, I also was on a national call recently and one of the participant panelists was um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank in, in St. Louis. And um, he emphasized the importance of testing uh, to be able to identify who has the virus, get them isolated, do the contact tracking, uh, and the analogy he used is, he said, uh, was was kind of a Jaws analogy. He said, the people aren't going to feel comfortable going back into the water until they know either there are no sharks or they at least know where the sharks are. That's, a, that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Seems appropriate. We got um, uh, a comment on Twitter and perhaps, Kevin, this you can react to this, but the person, just initials JB, says, no one would be making those not ready to reopen um, do so before they're ready. They say others should not be punished because some businesses aren't ready. I guess just your reaction, Kevin. The widespread uh, variance of opinion, we touched on it early in this conversation about the, the protests and others um, saying, you know, we some some saying we should wait at, until until uh, there's a vaccine, um, which you know our, our economy would be completely dead probably by that point. Um, there is widespread opinion along this perspective, probably as much or more so than any issue you can think about, and and the feelings are strong and and passionate. And I think this uh, individual is, you know, reflecting. Um, one one end of the of the spectrum and that's why it's so difficult given that you know we're fighting this invisible enemy um for uh, government leaders to make those decisions about when to lift uh, stay-at-home orders and and how to uh if it's going to be phased in fa phase in um that return to work uh situations and and we see that you know it's taking place uh, differently across the country, and maybe that's kind of analogous to the states being the laboratories of experimentation. And uh, we're, we're going to see whether these states that have gone forward um, did so appropriately or whether they did so uh, too quickly and, and end up having a second surge. So we only have about uh, four minutes to go here in the program. And, you know, we're we're talking in a lot of speculative ways here. Uh, in about two hours, we're going to know a lot more about what's going on after the governor has his news conference, after the mayor and the county commissioners have their news conference. Um, I guess I want to ask Graham to sort of revisit, you know, no matter what they do, what's your advice to people out there to keep themselves safe? I'm sure it hasn't really changed much over time, but what are, what are people doing that's right, and what do people need to do more of? And you're right, it hasn't changed much. And I think, you know, still just looking for going out for essential things. And if that includes work, you know, that includes work. Uh, all those tried and true prevention measures that we've talked about before with hand washing and respiratory hygiene and isolating if you're sick and not going to work and you're sick, all those things still apply. I think getting the flu shot is going to be always important, but especially important this fall, even more so. Um, and I think some of the things maybe that have changed since we last spoke was uh, we're seeing more of the, this potential for the aerosol or airborne transmission and the, the the high degree of asymptomatic spread. And so that goes back to, to, I think the masks are very important. And again, they're not really to protect you from the virus, it's for you to protect your, uh, others. Uh, because again, we could be walking around unknowingly having it. So those things uh, are, are always gonna be there. I think that's somewhat of a new thing. Uh, and I think we're gonna be wearing masks for some time. Uh, but but lastly, I you know follow, continue to follow the guidance of, of public health, of your local health departments, as well as your employers as you do go back into work. Um, obviously, they are very appropriately concerned and there are a lot of guidance and things and uh, things that we need to follow and be sure of to just best protect ourselves again some imperfect measures but they're definitely worth enacting at this time so todd in the last couple minutes uh from a 
business business ethics perspective uh are, you know so you know what what do you hope that businesses take into account as they decide that they're going to start to open well this is going to be sort of a um I'm not, I don't mean this to be a glib answer, but but I really want them to take uh, take all of this into account. Um, and 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 part of that comes from in the business world, there there really isn't and necessarily a sort of an accepted uh, you know ethical foundation. And and I don't mean that I don't mean that to say that business people aren't ethical. They are, but it's unlike say in the medical profession or even the legal profession where you have this well-established code that. People sort of buy into and and are um, indoctrinated into uh, through their education. Business people are thinking about all kinds of things, uh, from impacts to stakeholders uh, to the bottom line and everything in between. And so, uh, companies and business owners and leaders uh, are should and need to be thinking about deeply about all of these things. And I trust that that most of them are. Uh, and then, you know, to Kevin's point, um, th this this virus, this situation is going to lay bare a lot of the contrast and, and the whole continuum of how people think about doing business. And so um, it, it's going to be a challenge, but it's certainly also going to reflect um, uh, what, what some of our current and future challenges are. I would just add uh, one point. I think it's going to be customers that are going to have to decide how they're going to act as well. And we're out of time. I'm going to take that last word. We're out of time. I want to thank our three guests today, Graham McKean, Kevin Brenniger, and Todd Haw for our my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, for producer Benta Boutier, and John Bailey for engineers, Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.